Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. It's Friday, March 20th, and in the news, there seemed to be no shortage of funding announcements this week. Connie, what's going on? I would think that the number of funding announcements would dwindle to a trickle. <laughs> I have to say, the one thing about this terrible situation that we find ourselves in was I was thinking there would be fewer funding announcements to write about, and there aren't. I think there were 24 in yesterday's email newsletter. That's just outrageous. Why were there 24? Is that because you missed a day? <laughs> yes, to your point, I did miss a day. But also, obviously, a lot of these deals were done in the months and weeks leading up to our current weirdness. But I do wonder if they were being held for sort of a, a particular moment in time and their backers realize and the companies themselves may, maybe realize there's just no way to be as strategic about it right now. There's there's not like a, a window coming up during which it would be great to make this announcement. Yeah, they're certainly not going to make a splash this week. Nobody's going to give them high fives, given everything that's going on right now. There were some interesting announcements, though. I mean, there were a number of therapeutics companies that had raised really big rounds, as well as some enterprise companies. User testing, a platform that helps companies get on-demand user feedback on their software and applications, raised $100 million led by Insight Partners and news that sort of made you forget the world has changed. In other cases, though, you know, I, I will say I'm guessing term sheets are getting revoked. I think VCs have to be really careful right now about preserving whatever capital they have because their own investors are going to have a much, much harder time dealing with capital calls as their assets get whacked in this market. I wrote a story this week about what happens when institutional investors see a lot of their assets disappear, and they're not excited about writing checks for super illiquid assets right now, unsurprisingly. I, I think what some people in the industry don't realize is that when this happens, it doesn't just impact people who are trying to raise new funds, which, you know, right now, good luck with that, unfortunately, but it impacts a lot of investors who've already raised massive funds. Because the important thing to note, obviously, is that this is all committed capital that gets called down on a deal by deal basis. It's not like it's sitting in a VC's bank account somewhere. So VC investors can, in extreme circumstances, stop wiring that money. Connie, that's a great teaser for our conversation with Chris Duvos of Ahoy Capital. In times like these, LPs can signal to funds in which they've invested to slow down the investment pace. And in extreme circumstances, they can look for outs in LP agreements in order to stop contributing capital. So it is a pretty grim time for VCs who will want to keep their powder dry. And it's also of course, a very bad time for entrepreneurs who depend on these VCs for funding. Speaking of companies that are facing tough times, WeWork learned that SoftBank wants to change the terms of its investment. WeWork is getting worked by SoftBank, it seems. <laughs> Connie? Yes, it's really getting socked as people around the globe are forced to stay home. So SoftBank is reportedly backing away from its part of its planned bailout of the company. This, according to the Wall Street Journal, who I think published the story maybe yesterday, a notice was sent to WeWork shareholders earlier this week that said that SoftBank believes regulatory probes into the startup's business, including from the SEC and the Justice Department, give it an out under the deal struck last fall to purchase $3 billion worth of WeWork shares from existing investors. So Yes, investors looking for outs anywhere they can find them. Of course, SoftBank really needs help. I mean, 
Across the board, everyone in this industry is getting hit, but SoftBank is in a particularly terrible situation. In fact, apparently SoftBank is right now trying to raise $5 billion in fresh funding for its vision fund, money that it would match with its own $5 billion contribution. The problem, unbelievably, is that some of the companies that the vision fund have backed are running out of money already and might not survive the year otherwise. It's hard to believe, but I think they were pushed to grow so fast that they're sort of like the roadrunner who finds himself in midair looking down. Or a drunken sailor spending his last wad of cash. (laughs) While we're on the subject of sad news, Connie, there's a writer that you admire who recently wrote about what we're going through. Yes, Alex, that's true. (laughs) Uh, This writer is Leah Finnegan, and I was reading this as we were coming into our little studio, and she sort of called what we're collectively enduring right now the saddening, which I thought was sadly apt, with normalcy and joy replaced right now with fear and sadness. And obviously a lot of confusion as we're all trying to grapple with the weirdest thing to happen in our lifetimes, which at our advanced ages is saying a lot. I'm kidding. I'm still 28, as everyone out there should be aware. But I am really thankful for platforms, Google Hangouts, FaceTime, Zoom calls. Our kids are using it. We're using it. Without these services, I'm not sure what we'd all be doing. Yeah, our kids today were on a Zoom call with their friends, and it seems to be the only way that people can communicate these days, and kids really need that connection. Absolutely. And also, well, thank God for Zoom, because I'm going to put in a quick plug here for an event that we are hosting. This is coming up fast. This is our first virtual event coming up this Wednesday night, March 25th, thanks to a lineup of speakers who we very much appreciate sticking with us, even as we move this whole shebang online from what was originally going to be uh, in, in a venue in downtown San Francisco. But Notice, if you want to hear from smart investors and founders in a crazy making time, please do join us. And you can reach out to me directly for more information at Connie at strictlyvc.com. But jumping online with us will be Alexis Ohanian and Gary Tan of Initialized Capital. Scott Cutler, who is the CEO of the sneaker and streetwear marketplace StockX, who's joining us to talk about his business and frankly, how this crazy new reality impacts it. Laura Deming, a research scientist and investor who's focused on longevity and was apparently in the lab this week working on COVID-19 diagnostics. So should have some interesting things to say. And finally, we're really looking forward to a chat with three other VCs, Charles Hudson of Precursor Ventures, Eva Ho of Fika Ventures, and Aiden Sunkut of Felicis Ventures, who will be speaking candidly about what they're experiencing right now and how this new world is impacting their piece of the startup world. Again, that's Wednesday night, March 25th. Email me for more information. This week, we're talking to Chris Duvos of Ahoy Capital. Chris has been investing in venture funds and startups for over 20 years. He's a very colorful character. We hope you enjoy it. But first, a word from our sponsor. Fully, 88% of wealth managers recommend investing in fine art and collectibles. And it makes sense. Fine art has outperformed the S&P by 180% since 2000, according to Citibank. Enter Masterworks, a first-of-its-kind investment platform that allows investors to trade shares of multi-million dollar paintings by the all-time greats Basquiat, Warhol, Picasso. There's over 25,000 people waiting to get in, but readers of Strictly VC can skip the wait list. Check out the Strictly VC newsletter for information on how to get in on this deal. 
Chris, you're among the better known institutional investors out there, and that's because you're one of the most valuable people, but also one of the straightest shooters. Still, for listeners who might not know who you are or what you do, can you just give us a quick overview? Sure. So my name is Chris Duvos, and I run a fund of funds called Ahoy Capital, and we manage a pool of assets on behalf of a bunch of uh, nonprofit institutions, endowments and foundations kind of throughout the country who are sizable enough to want venture exposure, but not so large as to have the resources and the staff to devote the full-time attention that, that you need to effectively play in this space because it's a pretty dynamic and, and fast-moving one. So we're kind of the eyes and ears uh, in Silicon Valley of a mostly kind of Midwestern and, uh, and more Eastern institutions. And I got my start, actually, uh, speaking of the East, back at Princeton University's endowment in 2001, right out of business school. And it's actually funny because I was supposed to be the timber guy because I did my whole interview when I was graduating from business school with the Princeton guys about timber, like it's such a great asset and leave the trees in the ground if the prices for wood aren't so great and they they continue to grow and and you can really it's a great counter cyclical asset for those with long horizons which is great for endowments and literally two weeks after i joined the venture guy quit and they said who wanted to do venture and in 2001 venture was probably the the least sexy asset class in an endowment portfolio and so I raised my hand. So I started spending a lot of time out here. I was at Princeton for a bunch of years. I joined a place called TIFF. TIFF was a, a consortium of nonprofits. We were trying to bring them, you know, kind of in big endowment style investing for people that were less well-resourced, much smaller, typically like community foundations, stuff like that. It was amazing. I ended up leaving TIFF when they closed the West Coast office in 11, joined a place called Venture Investment Associates, and then spun out my funds in 2018. You were on a panel discussion with me, I think when you were still with VIA. This was a few years ago in New York, and we were talking about your career and something that you blogged about, which was that as an LP, sometimes your back is up against a wall. There's a, you know, maybe a great fund manager, but the timing's not right or what have you, and you say no, and it's very hard to get back into that fund's good graces. So specifically, you kind of laugh with, I guess, some horror about the fact that you had passed on Excel's fund, specifically the fund that backed Facebook. What happened? Was it just the timing of the market, the Excel's returns weren't so spectacular at the at that time, or what drove that decision? Yeah, and so I said no to probably one of the better funds of that decade, not once, but twice. And, you know, again, I, I say I a lot, but it's obviously a, a team decision, but definitely on the front lines. And I, you know, I always talk about, you know, the epistemology of investing, like, why do we believe what we believe? What is our justified true belief? All that stuff, right? It's almost philosophical. And, you know, rewind to 2004, you know, we were there at Princeton, we were existing investors, and and, uh, you know, Excel was coming back and we were really kind of rethinking our portfolio a little bit because, you know, some of our, you know, kind of most, you know, long established names had stumbled. Others had done well. We wanted to double down with those. There were a bunch of new managers. And so, you know, there was a, a lot of tumult in the portfolio. And then there was a question really of, you know, venture returns have just been so grim in an endowment where you've got, you know, the panoply of asset wa- assets. Why are you going to buy this long dated way out of the money option? Like it's really got to be worth it to compensate mm-hmm. you for the risk and illiquidity, right? And so here comes Excel, and we were kind of like, yeah, you know, returns haven't been good. They have, they've had some team turnover, like a couple of the partners had just left. You know, we we're just like, you know, 
you know, we could do better. And so, so we said no. And it was funny because as we said no, and there were a bunch of other folks that, that said no, I could, you know, go down the list and it's kind of the top 10 of, you know, the U.S. News and World Report college list of, you know, people that said no. It was just kind of everybody threw up their hands and was like, wow, the, you know, the numbers just don't, ju- don't justify this. There's, you know, there's so much, you know, kind of, uh, you know, team tumult, all that stuff. And and then you know they started like dialing up some some other investors and and you know this friend of mine called me up at a different endowment and he goes you know we just got the call from Excel and he goes you know it was like a real shit dam and I'm like what's a shit dam he's like when you're like shit we're gonna get to like talk to Excel and then you like open up the book and see what the returns are and you're like damn that sucks <laughs> right but to them they really righted the ship but you know I didn't we didn't know that at the time so we said no and then I get to TIFF and literally my first day and we had this amazing chief investor officer literally the first day he said hey by the way we have to say yes or no to excel and i'm like no way (laughs) so i said no twice to you know one of the best funds of that era but the reality is that like it's decision making under uncertainty and i had a uh you know a mentor of mine you know kind of a top 10 midas list kind of guy you know an older guy who once said to me i said you know what did i miss like what did i not get about excel he goes hey look as an institutional investor, you made exactly the right decision. There was so much going on there, you know, that returns were were weak. And you know what? You made a good decision that had a bad outcome. And sometimes that happens invest, in investing. And sometimes bad decisions have good outcomes, right? We're, we don't live in a Newtonian universe where force equals mass times acceleration, right? Like we have a lot of uncertainty in our decisions. And so, you know, it was a a lesson, but like a 20x or 10x, whatever that fund ended up being, you know, lesson for me. (laughs) Well, it certainly happens to VCs a lot. I mean, a lot of people love to talk about how they missed. Well, they don't love to talk about how they missed, but a lot of people missed uh, Uber, obviously, and talk about their anti-portfolios. But it's very relevant now because the market is you know, terrible. I think LPs are going to have a lot of hard decisions to make. Obviously, turning away a fund is one of those possibilities. But also, I'm just wondering if LPs are going to have to cut back on committed capital. So we've read a lot about these gigantic funds that have been raised in recent years, you know, setting records. But with these big endowments, pension funds, with their assets off, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 percent, maybe more, Where's that money going to come from? What are they going to do? Are you talking to your LP friends about these sorts of decisions? Yeah. And, you know, here we are just for context. The market is down to below, you know, levels, uh, you know, that we'd last seen before Trump was elected. So this is, you know, kind of three years plus of performance that we've given away. And so... There's a lot of consternation and a lot of wringing of hands, and everybody is really freaked out about liquidity. Part of the challenge is that even going into this, we were so heavily levered to venture because people talk about the denominator effects. That's kind of what you're describing, right? If your venture target is 10% of your portfolio and you have a billion dollar portfolio and all of a sudden it's $700 million, that's a non-trivial amount of venture allocation that you just don't have anymore to, to dole out. And when I say you know targets, like most people people have NAV targets, right? So that's uh, the the net asset value of the, the portfolios. That doesn't even take into account the commitments. And if you're projecting that we're going to be down and down for a while, you've got to start like factoring that into the commitment budget, right? And then there's this like funky thing that 
in in an ideal world, and I'll talk about this in a second, but you know, investing nirvana for institutional investors is when you're recycling distributions. So the money's coming out and getting funneled back into capital calls that are being made, and you're just kind of spinning that that money flywheel. And that hasn't been happening. I'll talk about that in a second. But so what you're describing is the denominator effect. The problem is we actually went into this with a numerator effect. And what I mean by that is like we had a ton of appreciation across venture portfolios and the funds were coming back. You know, historically venture funds, you know, would come back to market every three to four years. In some eras, it was even five years. And for the last, you know, seven, eight years, we've been on like a two-year cadence, you know, maybe even maybe even going back a decade, where funds are coming back every two years. So you're three, four funds deep before you really know if you've got good telltales on those funds. So you're you're putting out a lot of money. It's great, though, because you can go to your investment committee with a straight face and say, hey, look at this performance, right? Like the, the valuations were, were ballooning. So the, you know, the NAVs looked great. Those are unrealized gains, though, right? Exactly, right? You know, I always talk about moolah and the kula, right? Like you got to put the dollars, you know, in the bank because, you know, the old joke on the East Coast, all the hedge fund guys say, you know, Miller Motorcars, which is the, you know, kind of Ferrari, Maserati, whatever dealership in Greenwich, Miller Motorcars doesn't accept IRR as a form of payment, right? Like at the end of the day, it's about cash, right? So we've got these huge NAVs, these huge paper, you know, markups that look great. And the venture person can go into the committee and, you know, with a, you know, puffed up chest. But now all of a sudden, by the beginning of this year, people were like way out over their allocations. Their target allocation might have been 10%, but their value is actually like 14%. And now all of a sudden, if your equity portfolio is halved, which we haven't gotten to half yet, now your venture is 28% of your portfolio against a target of 10. You're like, oh my God, what happened? And by the way, you've now got all these like capital calls, like undrawn commitments where like you're going to start getting calls and people are going to be like, yeah, we, we, you know, we're finding all these great deals, quote unquote. And so we need 5% of your commitment sent in. And you're like, where does the money come from? So now you're at an endowment and you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to sell stock that's in the tank. The public market portfolio ends up being the ATM for the, you know, the illiquid stuff. And you're just like, holy smokes, you know, this kind of sucks. And so the first thing you do is you start saying like, I can't really make a lot of new commitments. Like we're not quite there yet because I don't think anybody really knows where we're going, right? We've invested in a fund, a really good, new, exciting, you know, kind of micro VC fund. And the guy's like closed on 35 of his, of his 50 million. And I'm pinging a bunch of my LP friends and people that he's got, you know, making warm intros and stuff. And overwhelmingly, the response I'm getting is we're not investing in new relationships right now, right? We're not even investing the time. So that's new relationships. At some point, that starts to creep back into your existing portfolio and you start doing portfolio triage. And you're like, wait, I have 24 venture managers. Huh. I've got to cut somewhere. Do I make smaller commitments to each of them? Do I start saying, you know, sayonara to, to the bottom third? What if the bottom third includes like the next Excel fund? One thing, you know, Connie, uh, you and I have talked about is like once, you know, once you say goodbye, like you can't you know, go home again, right? Like, I, you know, the, the Excel guys would have no interest in talking to me. You're still not getting a holiday card uh, exactly, from them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, let's just say I'm not like saving, the, you know, putting a circle on the, on the calendar for their holiday party. So beyond re-upping in funds in which you already have a commitment, are you also signaling to some of your fund managers, hey, slow down, stop doing new investments, 
do not ask us for capital right now. So that's a very real thing, right? That's a very real thing that happens. And it's interesting because I've been around, I saw the post.com bubble and then I saw the 08 challenge. And they were two very different like LP reactions. Back in 01, I was you know, showing up just as people were saying, you know, hey, you guys raised a billion dollar fund. That should be a you know, $300 million fund. You guys should cut that fund size. And it's interesting because I'll, I'll tell you, like going back to 01, like this is how bad it can get. And if you indulge me on the story, it's actually like a, an interesting story because it's the craziest thing I ever saw and happened to me my first week at Princeton. There was a manager who was in healthcare IT and, you know, interesting person that done done well, but healthcare IT got creamed in the dot-com bust. And this person raised a fund in February of 2000. So raised $150 million, reasonable size. And this person didn't call capital between February of 2000 and when I got to Princeton in June of 2001. And what they could have done is they could have called literally like $10 to pay their lawyers or something. I get to Princeton and the first thing that's dropped on my desk is we've got this fund that's in trouble. And this GP was like, I I called them up. They were like, this is our problem. Our fund's $150 million and our anchor tenant, which is a big you know, endowment of a school that we'd all want to send our kids to, is a 20% commitment, so a $30 million commitment. And they went digging through the legal docs and it says that if we don't call capital for any reason within a year, their commitment can go away. So all of a sudden that endowment said we're out because we're down you know, 40%. So now the fund's a $120 million fund. There was another LP who was 10% of the fund, no matter the fund size. And so all of a sudden their commitment went from 15 million to 12 million, so there goes another three. And then there was another endowment that couldn't be in a fund that was less than 125 million, and they were 10 million, so boom, oh they're goodness. out. That's how, how bad it can get. In 08, what we saw was a lot of pressure. A lot of people were calling. It didn't get that bad, but a lot of people were calling and saying, don't call capital. Just don't call capital because we're out over our skis so far that any capital that you call, we have to sell, you know, stocks that are in the tank. And we think the stock market will bounce mm-hmm. back, you know, before the private markets. And by the way, if I'm in an endowment, like I'd rather put a dollar into a stock that I think is going to double within a year than put something in the dollar that's going to go into, you know, venture that could, you know, kind of three or four X in 10 years. So there's so much of a premium on liquidity. People are like, don't call cash capital, whatever you do, please don't call capital. Now, meanwhile, the venture people who live in a vacuum, like we've got this amazing echo chamber here, right? And everybody believes that, oh my gosh, all of a sudden there's value. Like entrepreneurs are suddenly like willing to accept term sheets at like 10% less. What they don't realize is like, there is so much more value out in the rest of the world. Like we don't play a value hand here. It's a growth game, right? And I think that's great. I'm not saying that with any kind of judgment at all. That's the game we all signed up for. But when I start hearing VC saying, wait, there's a lot of value out there. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Value is like, if you're talking public markets, like there's value everywhere. Like there's wreckage in the street. Like every company's on sale 50% off. I would like go buy pharma companies today, right? Like, I I don't know, I'm not a public stock guy. I'm not smart enough, (laughs) but uh, not smart enough for venture either. I don't know what I'm doing, but, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) uh, but like, 
Neither does half of the industry. Yeah, you know, we're all we're all just having fun. It's it's good, but we're changing the world, and that's what matters. We're disrupting stuff, right? That's what we do. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyhow, but like even in the public stuff, you say, okay, I am going to be illiquid. Literally, like you go to the buyout side of the portfolio, and there are companies like good companies with stable cash, relatively stable cash flows that are like going to default on loans. And that's value where there's like a capitulation, you can get 25 cent dollars. And you know, we're we're saying that, oh, the new demo day has a valuations are down X percent. I don't know if they are or not. But like, it sounds less interesting. All it's so much less interesting. But, but Chris, I have to ask, you know, I didn't really think about the fact that you have to deploy capital within a certain period of time. So this is such an unusual situation where we really don't know how long we're all going to be sheltering in place, how long everything's going to be at a virtual standstill. So are are these terms fairly common? And is there sort of a percentage of a fund typically that you have to deploy within a certain period of time? Are you? Yeah. So that's, you know, even the that's a great a question. That that's a great question. And I will say the situation that I described was an extreme situation. And that term is a very LP friendly term. But what is extremely common, in fact, in every document that I see, funds have an investment period during which they can make new investments. And for most funds, it's long enough. It's like five, six years, whatever. But one thing that's really interesting is I know a fund that during the last downturn basically was at the tail end of their commitment, new commitment period. And they couldn't get the deal to close before it expired. And so they went to their LPs and were like, hey, we've got this awesome deal. This is a killer deal can we get an extension of our investment period? And the LP said no. And so they couldn't do that deal. And that deal turned out being a very, very good deal. It wasn't like an Uber quality deal, but it was a very good deal and would have like changed this fund from being an okay fund to being an outstanding fund. The lesson from that is, and again, that's an extreme case. And I can't imagine, you know, with the way we've been spinning capital here that anybody's really going to push up against the end of their commitment periods. But, you know, it's a good lesson in like, hey, you actually need to know your documents and you should probably know them better than your smartest LP. Most LPs are pretty lackadaisical about documents. They, they feel like they're kind of standard and we're just getting screwed over by Gunderson Detmer or whichever law firm. But the reality is that there's some LP associate somewhere whose job it is to be like, huh, how are these GPs getting over on us? And they can make a lot of trouble for you. And when there's a, an event like the coronavirus or 2008 or the dot-com bust, they're looking for those uh, exit strategies. Exactly. And so they're pouring through the documents just looking for some loophole. Chris, I wanted to ask, are you hearing anything from VCs? Are, are they telling you that this is the worst environment they've ever seen? Are they scared? People are really nervous, right? I, and I've been getting like all the updates and I'm calling a bunch of my VCs. You know, we also do direct investments. We've got about, you know, 50 investments directly into companies. And I'm talking to a lot of the, you know, a lot of the founders, a lot of the management teams. And I think that people kind of don't know what's going to happen, right? Like we're in the early innings of this. I think that we've got kind of twists and turns on tap that we may not even understand. I have an email in my inbox that came in and, you know, 20 minutes ago from a health system. And the, the guy here says it's an investment officer at a health system. And he says, our CEO is concerned that the infection rate in the US will look like that in Italy over time. 
with the caveat of the fluidness of the situation and everything that is and everything is subject to change, we would appreciate any color you can provide on capital calls and distributions in the near term. Are there any opportunities to generate liquidity in any underlying funds or investments? That's a you know wild email to get because you're just like. I will tell you, I've got a 2012 fund that's an awesome fund. We've had a bunch of great companies. We got, you know, first round had Looker, and you know, Blue Apron was was a good win for them. You know, there, True had Duo Security and a couple other things. That fund's been, you know, chugging along well. For um, Data Collective has a bunch of great companies in that fund, and I was expecting this year. That's a 2012 fund. You know, so that's an eight year old fund. I was kind of expecting this year to be like a nice liquidity year, right? Like we we just started sure. to get like the early innings of liquidity. And I am I have basically, in my letter to my investors, I said, expect no liquidity out of that fund this year. I think we're all going to be ruining 2020 is this year where all these companies like missed their window. Yeah, they should have gone out in 2018. It's sort of funny now to think that like two months ago, we were talking about direct listings. Sometimes when something like this happens, money comes from elsewhere to fill the vacuum. I don't know where that would happen in this case. I mean, I'd propose Saudi Arabia, but the coronavirus, I think, is newly gaining traction there, too. And also, I think it's a terrible time for the oil industry. I'm just wondering, is there a white knight out there? Yeah. So it's really interesting because I remember in 01, the venture industry got so big, we saw, I think, $100 billion in committed capital in 2000. And most of that was funds that closed in the first quarter. So there was this huge amount of capital that that came in, and that came in from everywhere, right? Like it was kind of like like it is now. And after the crash, you know, you had all these you know, situations like the ones I've described, where a lot of institutional investors like we need out, right? And what was amazing about that time is all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you had like the Singaporeans show up, so like Temasek and GIC, and they started dropping big dollars. And not too long after that, the Australian superannuation funds came in. Those classes of investors really supported the venture industry in kind of 02, 03, 04, 05. And it was really important during that time. And then after 08, I look back to like 2009, 10, 11. That's when we saw the first big waves of capital from the Gulf and Russia and some of these other places. And that kind of stabilized the market until everybody got their their sea legs again in kind of 12 and 13. And I think you're right. Like, it's really interesting. Like, you know, here we've had another huge fundraising year. And I'm like, wow, I don't know where the next pools come from that will kind of, you know, stabilize things. So I don't want to get like alarmist about it. But I think the venture industry as a whole is going to get resized over the coming years. The problem is that the capital is so persistent. The committed capital, you know, is, is on the books forever. And I remember Doug Leone from Sequoia said to me in 2004, like mid 2004, he goes, because, you know, the Sequoia guys always want less competition. Like they, you'd call them for a reference on somebody. They're like, you know, I, I don't want them raising a fund because, you know, that's more competition for us. You know, they, they, or is it, you know, it's a very collegial business and they've got, you know, kind of a very competitive mindset, which is probably right. Doug said to me in 2004, he goes, you know, if this venture downturn had lasted one year longer, we finally would have shaken the dead wood out. And there's a lot of marginal investors in the in the business today. And like, you know, maybe it'll take a few years for them to, to shake out. But boy, if I'm like some programmer out of some big, you know, company and I've got like, you know, $25 million fund that I scratched up from my friends and family and I'm like looking for like the hot deal coming out of Twitter and doing like these momentum, you know, overpriced deals, I'm thinking like, 
if this downturn persists, how long can I credibly do this before I go start another company? Right, right, Chris. I think a lot of people are thinking about these issues right now and chewing at their nails. So considering that there's this now dearth of liquidity on the IPO market, what do you expect is going to happen on the secondary market? Do you think people are being, you know, ushered onto it now and, you know, being told, look, take what you can get? You know, there's two, there's two secondary markets. There's the company secondary market, and then there's the, the fund secondary market. And, you know, it's interesting because there's an immense amount of capital kind of looking for fund stakes. So if I'm a VC right now, I'm wondering when investors start capitulating. Now we're talking kind of like six to nine months out. And, you know, there's there's a ton of these, you know, folks who have billions of dollars, you know, committed capital, and they, you know, love to do deals that, you know, they price out to like 1.5 X's at like 35% IRRs. And they're going to be looking to, to buy fund stakes at, you know, kind of 65 cents on the dollar. But that's like six six to nine months out when you really see a capitulation, you really start to see transactions. And so, you know, in 2008 into 2009, we actually ended up not seeing, I think, as much activity as people thought there might be. There was a lot, but but not as, as much. I think there was never really a capitulation. In the company market, it's interesting because there are a lot of these direct secondary funds, and then there are a lot of people, you know, kind of buying and selling, you know, individual stocks. And I think it's interesting because what, what ends up happening is um, people get anchored to their prior valuations. And then what happens is that you don't end up needing to raise new money. So the company never gets remarked until you're out of cash, right? One of my GPs sent out a note that they've told other companies to prepare for you know a two-year drought in financing. And so those companies aren't going to like all of a sudden be marked down. And so you're like, okay, I'm in company X at a $6 billion valuation. Do I really want to sell at a $3 billion valuation and, you know, and book that loss when I can hold on and maybe we do a flat round the next time? So, you know, this is kind of a a complicated question because it, it all kind of depends, but I think there's a lot of money that sits out there just waiting for a capitulation. And, and that's, you know, that's going to be a tough moment for a lot of people where they do a gut check. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, obviously timing it is so crucial because if things keep falling, then these companies do end up having to spend that money that's on their balance sheets. They could be in a much, much worse position if they don't get proactive about it. Right. And, and you know, like if, I, if I'm a founder right now, like of a mature company, the public market is probably going to be shut for a while. And then when the public market's shut, acquirers, first of all, their cheap currency just got a lot more expensive, number one. And number two, acquirers with cash are like in the catbird seat. They don't have to worry that, you know, company X is going to go public. They're like, okay, you want to go public? You want to do a direct listing? Go ahead. All of a sudden, they they can kind of be a price maker, not a price taker. And so, you know, the the companies really have to, you know, kind of think about their their strategies in a market where, you know, your, your acquisition window might not open again for a couple of years. And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies rethink growth plans, but still balancing revenue, because at the end of the day, revenue is amazing because it really lengthens your runway, right? Like you can't fake revenue. We're just hearing a lot of people say, you know, get revenue where you can, and that'll, you know, that'll keep your company running and hopefully keep people out of the secondary market. Thank you so much for your time. I always love talking to you. I know Alex really loved talking to you as well. Thank you so much, Chris. Super fun to hang out with you guys. So that's it for this week. Many of you have asked about the fine-tuned machine that is 
the Strictly VC Download podcast, and we wanted to introduce you to another one of our interns. Yo, 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 Sticky Joe. What is your name? Natty. What do you do for us? Uh, my mom's enslaving me. <laughs> enslaving seems like a little bit of a stretch, don't you think? Absolutely not. <laughs> Thanks again, everyone. And remember, if you are looking for something to do this coming Wednesday night, you are welcome to join us for our fully digital event. Just let me know. Thanks. Bye.